John chapter 18, verse 38, through chapter 19, verse 16. I find no fault in him. The Greek word atia can be translated guilt or fault. Uh, maybe another word as well, but I have chosen to use the word fault rather than guilt. I find no fault in him. Nor do you or nor can you find fault in him. The Via Della Rosa, Christ, down the road to the greatest event in human history, to be slaughtered as a substitute on the behalf of sinful people. John 18, we left off with the question, what is truth? We continue. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no fault in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him. I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You're not going to speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus said to him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, He who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him, him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this day 
as we give all of our attention this morning to Christ, the substitute, the lamb without blemish, that we would see the worth, the value, the sweetness, the preciousness of Christ who has loved us so that he would lay down his life and pour out his blood to atone for our sins. What kind of love is this? No one has ever loved us like Christ has loved us. Lord, may every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this room today know as they look at this text that Christ loves them loves them more than they can understand, and that by your love you would draw them to yourself that they may be one with you. We pray this by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Find no fault in him. Let the whole world set their hearts on examining Christ. Look deep into his words. Look into his actions, look into his intentions, look into his motives. See if there be any fault to be found. Let the examination be done by the religious, by the worldly leaders, like unto Pilate, or by the agnostic and the atheist alike. Let them dive into Jesus' private and public life and see if they could find any dirt on him. Let the tabloids be deployed. Let the liberal news media have their day. Let the heresy hunters have their turn. Let the professors, let the scientists, let the evolutionists, and those with doctoral degrees and those of intellectual minds have their try at finding fault with Jesus. Let the lowly, let the uneducated, let the barroom brawler, the carnal-minded, the egocentric, the good old boy, the redneck, the the blue-collar worker, the sexually immoral, the homosexual, the lesbian, the Republican, the Democrat, the Supreme Court, the Senate, and the Congress, and every other office in the whole world look into the life of Christ and see if they can find fault. See if they can find any dirt that's hidden on him somewhere in his life. Bring 2,000 years of investigation and lay it on the table from Caiaphas to Annas to Herod to Pilate and just lay it out and show me the fault you have in evidence about Christ. After all of these years and after all of these investigations, February the 5th, 2023, the piece of paper that records the evidence of fault in Christ is still blank. Amen? Still blank. Moses said it. Peter confirmed it, right? Moses said, your lamb shall be without blemish. Exodus 12. Peter confirms it and Peter says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. And if that's not enough confirmation, the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. No fault to be found in Christ. 
the world's examination as we look at this text, focusing obviously on the three-time phrase, I find no fault in him. The world's examination, maybe you're in this crowd, maybe you know those who are in this crowd, and so we look at these things this morning. What has the world found? Let's be honest. They've tried to say that Christ did not exist. There are those of that camp who tried to prove that Jesus Christ never was in bodily form, never walked upon the earth, but they've been unable to procure that to be true. They've tried to say, as many of the Sadducees did, even to this day, there was no actual resurrection. Somebody stole the body. They've tried that one, of which they have not yet to prove. They've tried to say that he was a drunkard, and they implied that because of the people he was around, implying that he was a drunkard himself. Just because he was around drunkards, they've never produced a shred of evidence that Jesus Christ was ever drunk. They've tried to say that he was the friend of sinners. He was the friend of sinners, but not a sinner of friends. They have no implications, no way to write down a charge upon that. They've tried to twist his words into something that he did not say, which is always the tactic of the enemy. Take your words, twist them, and say, oh, well, he said he would rebuild the temple in three days, and obviously he can't do that. Twist the words and make him sound bad. They've charged him with being a malefactor, with being a criminal, but never have they proved a credible crime committed by Christ. They've rejected, they've denied, they've mocked, they've derided, and they've ignored. But they have never revealed a genuine fault with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand the weight of this? Look, here's how it works. If you don't catch the weight of this, go and run in a hotly contested debate for a political office and have the other side try to get dirt on you. Dude, they'll pull up stuff you forgot. They'll dig in, they'll bring this up, and you say, man, I don't even remember doing that. And they'll find all kinds of fault in your life. Look, if they could find one evidence of fault in Christ, they would produce it. That's what's so staggering about the hardness of the human heart. Look, there's lost people in this very room. You can't find one fault with Christ, but yet you won't submit to him. You won't honor him. You won't worship him, and you won't revere him, but you've got nothing to bring saying he's failed. He's the only perfect one you'll ever know, and you just in your pride and arrogance say, I don't want him. The truth of the matter is, the only credible charge against him was this. And it was found in Matthew 27, 37. Over his head, they put this charge against him. And it read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's credible. He's the king of everybody. No fault found in him. Let me say just a couple of things about the word fault, the Greek word fault. A basis for legal action. A basis for legal action. What else? A charge. You have a ground for complaint. Or we can say it this way from another lexicon. Cause for which one is worthy of punishment. Crime of which one is accused. Here's the crime. Here's the penalty. That's what a fault would be. Or the basis or grounds for an accusation in court. Basis of an accusation. A reason for accusing someone why someone should be accused of something bad. Or if you want to look at it in a forensic sense, fault, guilt, crime. 
It's simple how this works. If I'm at fault, you say, this is your fault. And you make the accusation, you bring your witness, and you say, Randall did this and this and this. We caught it on camera, and this is what he did. It's clearly contrary to the law. He's at fault. Then he should be sentenced. That's the way it works. You follow this story, and you cannot find a clear fault or accusation anywhere in the life of Christ. You say, well, what should I do with this information? This. Think about this first. When Paul preached in Antioch, remember in the book of Acts, Paul preached in Antioch, he uses the same Greek word, fault, when he preaches in this verse. He says, and though they found no fault in him. Think about the words. Here's this group of people who find no fault. They got nothing to bring in contradiction about his life, physically or morally. No, no guilt, no fault, worthy of death. We got nothing that gives us a reason to execute him. The verse goes on, they asked Pilate to execute him. We find nothing wrong with him. Kill him anyways. How many of you in this day and age are outraged when someone murders a child? You're outraged that somebody would be murdered, that they did nothing wrong in your eyes. A two-year-old kid is murdered. A five-year-old kid is murdered. And you say, that murder ought to have all this. Look, they murdered an innocent man. There's no charge. He's never done one thing wrong, and they flat out demand his execution. May we be outraged at what they did to Christ. What your sin implies that you did to Christ. How do we respond to such a thing? The impeccable record of Jesus Christ. You ready? The impeccable record of Jesus Christ ought to cause you, ought to cause me to love him with great zeal. You can't find anyone else like him. Why is our love cold? Why are we lukewarm? If Christ is all of this and so much more, why is he not the burning, passionate love of our life? What happened to falling head over heels in love with him and never getting over him? We should love Christ with all of this because he first loved you. He's going down this road. For your redemption. The impeccable record of Jesus Christ ought to reveal to you this morning what an absolute fool you are for not repenting, believing Him, and being baptized. What justifiable reason can you give this morning that you will not submit to Christ, follow through in believer's baptism, and spend the rest of your life in a local church serving Him for His glory? What reason you got? He never lied to you. He's never been dishonest. He's never deceived. He's never said one thing and done another. Everything Christ has done for you has been pure, undefiled love. And you sit there in your rebellion and your pride and say, I don't want this man to rule over me. That's on you. You go to hell this morning. You'll go to hell over the love of Christ. You go to hell, you're going to trip over Christ. He's standing right before you in absolute perfection, in all of his glory. And he says, I love you. Would you come to me and worship me? And I'll lead you and I'll shepherd you. And I'll give you good grass and I'll give you good water. And I'll feed your soul for all of eternity. Oh, would you come? That's the world's 
examination. The world's accusation. We reach back into a couple of other verses, but still the same narrative, if you will. You go back to verse, chapter 18, verse 19. We're going to do an accusation. He's accused of secretly giving information to his disciples to raise them up to overthrow positions of power. What have you been telling your, what have you been teaching to your disciples? What, what are you raising your disciples up to do? What are you teaching them behind closed doors? And so they accuse him, the high priest is trying to determine if Jesus is raising up a band of disciples who in, intend to destroy certain positions. A high priest wants to know what Jesus has taught in secret. Is it different than what he's teaching in public? So the high priest questions all of that, and the conclusion is what? Everything I've taught is open and public. You can ask everybody in the world that's heard me. I only teach the same thing wherever I'm at. It's not one thing over here, one thing over there. I speak truth, and you can't find one shred of evidence that I'm telling my disciples one thing and the crowds another thing. My teaching has been consistent. The implication is that he was doing something behind closed doors, but the result of the questions, he is without fault. Another thing is the implication of evil. Look at chapter 18 and verse 30. They said, they answered him, they answered Pilate, these religious Jews. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. You should believe us for who we are, even though we have no charge to give. I mean, Pilate, come on, do you honestly think we'd bring this man up here and ask for his execution if he hadn't done anything wrong? And so they're being forced, he's forcing Pilate to believe them although they don't put forth any evidence. Let me give you an example. How does this work? The scientist says, you must believe in evolution. You must believe me because I'm a scientist, and I know everything, and the earth is 450 billion years old. I should believe you because you're a scientist. Can you give me the evidence of 450 billion years old? Because not long ago, it was just 400 billion years old. I think 50 billion years off is a mathematical failure. But we're asked to believe the evolutionist because he's a scientist. Don't believe him because he's a scientist. Put forth your proof and write it down or I'm not listening. This is what Pilate is asked. Believe us because we're religious Jews. We wouldn't bring him if there wasn't something evil. <laughs> well, then tell us what the evil is. They got nothing. And then you remember, after this exchange, Pilate is still confused. And so you look in chapter 18, and you look in verse 35, and you look at the end of the verse. He says to Jesus, what have you done? Like, all these things have been brought, and Pilate still don't know what he's done. So since they can't tell me what you did at fault, could you tell me what you did as a fault? Jesus doesn't even bother to answer his question. But the question by Pilate reveals the lack of evidence that has been given. Look, if a crime's been done, write it down, submit it, and say, here's the charge, here's the witnesses, what does the law say? But they can't do it. Should have done that, but they couldn't. It's a mock trial. The whole thing's unjust. 
It's like if you think about a courtroom setting, you have a judge, you have a prosecutor, and you have a defendant. And the prosecutor gets up, and he's a windbag, and this windbag goes on and on and on about the defendant over here, and he says all these things. And the prosecutor gets done, and the judge looks at the defendant, and he goes, so what did you do? I, I mean, after he got through talking, I still don't know what you've done. This, this case here, the Jews say all they say, and Pilate's like, so what exactly did you do? And then fourthly, these accusations continue. And this one's closer, at least in some regards, although it is wrong. He's accused of blasphemy. Look at 19 and verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. At least we got some material to work with now. Using God's name inappropriately is a violation of the third commandment, correct? Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's a breaking of the law. It would certainly be blasphemy for a man, for me, to stand before you this morning and say, I am God in human flesh, that's blasphemy. That would be a rightful charge, and I should be held accountable for such heretical statements. But if the man standing before you is actually God in human flesh, it's not blasphemy. That's why we do memory verses and things in our church. So we examine Jesus' character, and we find this proof. We look at Christ, and this is what we find. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature, right? We understand that from Hebrews 1, 3 through 4. He's the one sitting at the right hand of majesty on high after making purification for sins and all of this. He, he's given a name that's more superior to the angels, and the name he inherits is more excellent than theirs. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. No blasphemy. He is God in human nature. So, The only credible thing, in a sense, that they bring is not credible because their accusation is false because Christ is who he says he is. Remember that when you're accused of sinful behavior in your past, you, 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 and you. Well, you lied, and you stole, and you did this, and you did that. I'm forced to say, you're right, because I'm at fault. I sin. I'm, I, that's what I have to say, to be honest. I did. I've, but here's the reality. I know that I sin. That's why I'm in Christ, because he did not. And it's Christ who covers me, because I can't cover myself. I would encourage you not to spend all of your days trying to defend your name, and not trying to stand up for yourself but rather just point people to Christ. You say whatever you want to say about me, but I'm in Christ. I know my Bible. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's Christ that justifies. He justified me. So you bring any charge you want, but his blood has made me clean. His righteousness has been imputed to me, and I'm in him. So I'm not going to spend time trying to defend me because i got too many faults. But in Christ, I am forgiven, and so are you. Glory in Christ not in self. Lastly, look at at the world's declaration. We did an examination. We did accusation. Now we do the world's declaration. 
first of all, words do hurt, and they do penetrate the heart, and they do bother you when people say all kind of manner of things. Words are very powerful for the good or for the bad. Christ endured verbal cruelty. Did he not? Think about a few things. Selfishly, in, my, in this narrative here, just pulling these things right out of the text, but selfishly, they say things like this. We would rather have a guilty robber than an innocent king. Think about that. Here you are, Christ, doing everything with no fault, and the people you're doing it for say, we would rather have a guilty, fault-finding robber than an innocent king to rule over us. What a response of hardness of the human heart. I've been in this church for some 20-something years, and I wonder, how do people sit in this room and remain unconverted? I'm like, how can you not respond to the gospel? Are you just that much in hatred with God? You hate God so much, you're going to justify your lostness by rejecting the gospel and going to hell? I don't get how you can be so blind and so hard and so selfish to destroy your own self, but yet I read something like this, and here's a world seeing Christ in visible form and saying we would rather have Barabbas breaks a man's heart and Christ would look at Jerusalem and he would weep his eyes out because he loved them he loved them he's like the the rich young ruler the text says and he loved him Christ loved, he loves you in all your rebellion and all your pride and all your arrogance and all your selfishness he still does this for your soul Mockingly, the Roman soldiers say, Hell, king of the Jews, it's all laughter and mockery, making fun of Christ. Anti-theologically, Pilate says, Behold the man. No, no, Pilate, you're wrong. Behold the God-man. He only gets a half of it, which makes him a heretic. Religiously. Think of the religious people of the day. Crucify, 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 crucify. They utterly, the most religious people of the day, hate Christ. Illegally, the Jews say their law has been broken and the death penalty is to be executed. Christ has not broken the law. He is God in human flesh. Presumptuously. Pilate's claim of superior authority. Presuming? Pilate presumes to have more authority than Christ. This subservient moron claims to have more authority than the king of the universe. That's presumption. Blindly, the Jews verbally attack anyone Who does not, the Jews verbally attack anyone who does not bend to their desires to kill Jesus. They lash out at everyone who will not take their side. And then, worldly, the world says what? We have no king but Caesar. We're committed to our country, we're committed to our political system, and we do not recognize this man. To be a king of anything. All of these words Jesus hears, even if he doesn't hear them, he can read them on their hearts. He hears all of that. All of this cruelty of these verbal attacks. 
remember a story in Luke 19, and it was the parable of the ten minas. I give you the beginning and the end of the story. And he gives this story about this guy. The text says, but his citizens hated him. The citizens hated him. They sent a delegation after him. This is what they said. We do not want this man to rule over us. We don't want him. We reject Christ, his authority, and we don't want him. That's the position. But you must hear the end of the story because it doesn't end and everything worked out good and everybody lived happily ever after. For those who do not want Christ to rule over them, the end of the story is this. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. For every man and every woman and every boy and every girl who in their pride and arrogance and selfish Americanism say Christ will not rule over me, one day you will be executed by him. He is the king, and he will have the final say. You'll submit now, or you'll submit that day. You can come in here with all your pride and all your arrogance, and you think you're mighty and powerful, and you've got it all going on. I guarantee you, when you stand before Christ, you will bow the knee. And you will rue the day that you rejected Christ and all of his pleas of mercy for your soul. And you'll say, why on earth was I so stupid that I would reject the ever-living Son of God in order to live for myself in carnal ambition that only destroyed me in life and in eternity? And Christ is standing there saying, come, come, come. The thought is that even though the world cannot find any fault in Jesus, they simply refuse to submit to his rule over their lives. That's verbal. Physical cruelty is in the narrative as well. He was flogged. Mastagao is the Greek word for to whip or to beat with a whip. Beat with a whip or a lash. You'll know this from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And this is the way it's worked out in the law of Moses. It says there, if there's a dispute between, a man, to, between men and they come into court and judge, and the judge decides between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Christ is flogged like a guilty criminal, forced to lay down. Witnesses come around, and they take the whip, and they whip him, and they whip him physically. Crown of thorns, long spiked thorns bound up in a crown and shoved down upon the head. Piercing through the scalp, blood running down the face, blood running down the back from the flogging, mutilating the flesh of the Son of God. And as you look at the mutilated flesh of the Son of God, you say, why? And I say, because He loves you. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. He would give His life as a ransom in order that you could be redeemed. How can you be so hard-hearted and dry-eyed that you will not bow before this King? forced to wear a purple robe in order to make fun of him, to mock his supposed kingship. And then he had to bear his own cross. 
to put this old ugly, nasty curse upon his shoulder and then to be nailed to it on that dreadful day. And then there was emotional suffering, which in some regards is even more difficult. In the text in John 16, Behold, the hour is coming. He, he knew the day was coming. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. He says to his disciples, You'll be scattered each to his own home. Listen to the words. And you will leave me alone. Left by his closest associates, abandoned. When the very actions that he is taking is for their souls. And they run in fear. He says those classic words that I've cherished so much in my life. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. But there's coming a moment when even the Father changes his position about his son. Right? Jesus has to walk this path alone. Peter crumbles. The rest of the disciples gave in to the fear of man. And now here's Jesus nailed to a tree, looking into the faces of evil men, while at the same time doing what is right in the eyes of God. Looking at people who hate you while loving them is a tall task. It's a grave difficulty, even for men in our day, who are trying to be obedient to God while they continually experience responses from men that show no appreciation for what is being done for them. I can't help but think about my son-in-law standing in front of that church today, having given up two years of his life to minister to a group of people that flat don't care. It hurts and it breaks your heart to move your family 5,000 miles and serve a place for the glory of God. And now just twist everything and say, you're done. That crushes a man. And man in his own strength can't take it. That's why we need a great God. And Christ bore this himself. And he can carry anyone through anything, because he's our champion. After all of this, he's there on the cross. Can you see him there with everybody abandoning him? And the only words we get are what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here he is bearing the sin of murder and adultery and homosexuality and drunkenness and lies and coveting and blasphemy all upon his shoulders and the pure unmitigated wrath of God is being poured out upon him as if he committed those sins. What a Savior. He loved you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. What, what more can Christ do? What can he give? He gave every ounce of his blood. He gave everything of his life. He laid everything down saying, I love you. He's resurrected from the dead. He says, come. Come to me. Ain't nobody else going to do this for you. Remember, the verdict of the world contains no evidence of fault in Jesus. Remember, the verbal the physical, and the emotional suffering that Jesus went through. Yes, it was for the glory of God, but it was for your soul that you could be right with God. No matter what the whole world says about you, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is whether or not you're in Christ. 
It's all that matters. As you contemplate the truths of this sermon, that there's no fault was or ever will be found in Christ, I'll give you three quick things. It's come from Spurgeon, just reworded, but from Spurgeon. First, beware of external religion. Beware of external religion. Much of what was done to Christ was done by religious people. Beware. Secondly, <coughs> avoid all the proud worldliness like that of Pilate. The man who makes much of this world and of himself will always treat religion with contempt. And last of all, <coughs> of all and the most important of all, let us submit ourselves unto King Jesus, of whom there is no fault to be found. Well, may we take this position this morning, and may we agree with the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He's crucified, he's dead and buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Do you believe that today? And we don't have smoke and mirrors and blue lights and candles, and I don't know how to change the mood of the circumstance. But Brother Jeff's going to come and lead us in a closing song. Emily's going to play. And you come, you bow here on these steps, and you say, Lord, I give you my life. I submit to you as my king. I want to talk to my pastor about being saved. I want to talk to my pastor about being baptized. And I'm ready to stand before this church and let them all know that I believe Christ. And some of you could come this morning and you could bow down on your knees and you could plead for your child, for your grandchild, for your coworker and your neighbor. And you could down and say, Lord, I believe everything that was preached about Christ and there's no fault in him. Help my uncle to believe. Help my daddy to believe. Help my coworker to believe. Show them Christ. Show them Christ. Show them Christ. Show my daughter Christ. Show my grandchildren Christ. Oh, Lord, hear my prayer. You can pray that today and intercede on the behalf of of a soul. So Brother Jeff, you come. Emily, come. As we sing together, you're invited to come and to pray and to respond to what the Holy Spirit has said to you today.